Judges chapter 6, verses 1, then verses 11 to 16, and then Judges 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Bizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. 
As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. You may be seated. Let me open us with a quick word of prayer. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that we will see Jesus, the living word, and that you'll speak with your voice that we love and that we long to hear. Speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I just finished a, uh, a new biography that was recently published on Elizabeth Elliot. Um, if you're not familiar with Elizabeth Elliot, she was the wife of Jim Elliot. Uh, her husband Jim and four other American missionaries were martyred in Ecuador in the 50s uh, when they tried to make first uh, contact with a Ecuadorian tribe that had never been reached before. Um, and uh, when that happened in the 50s, again, I was not alive. Some of you were. Um, I was not alive, but from what I have read, it was a national news event. Uh, there was something in the story of those five men that resonated or struck a chord with many Americans. In fact, Elizabeth Elliot wrote an article on her experience later for Life Magazine, and according to Life Magazine, over 70% of American adults read that story. So this was not just big news with Christians, it was big news across the country. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting, we, uh, we know the name Elizabeth Elliot for a reason. There were actually four other widows as well who lost their husbands on that day, but we only know Elizabeth Elliot's name. And the reason for that is that about a year after Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband and the other four men who were martyred, she wrote a runaway bestseller called Through Gates of Splendor. 
that went on to sell thousands and thousands of copies. As of 2005, it was in its fifth edition. Continues to be a book that people read 70 years later and are impacted by. And then a few years after that, she wrote Shadow of the Almighty, which was, uh, so Through Gates of Splendor was a retelling of the five men, kind of their story and how they gave everything, literally, their lives to follow Christ and where they believed he was leading them. And then in the Shadow of the Almighty, she focused on her husband, Jim, and kind of told Jim's story through his own words by using his journal entries and kind of put together his journal entries to tell a narrative of his story. Uh, and that book also sold really, really well. And in fact, I, as a high schooler, read Shadow of the Almighty, and it was really formational for me in my development. And when I was reading through um, Elizabeth Elliot's biography, I began to realize even more like how much, uh, how I view basic discipleship and what it means to follow Christ and the need to, you know, the, 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 the central part of sacrifice and giving of ourselves to follow Christ, how much of that I draw from Elizabeth Elliot's book, Shadow of the Almighty. But here's the thing. All of this happened to Elizabeth Elliot when she was 29. And she'd written these two books by the time she was 32. Uh, no one knew who Elizabeth Elliot was before her husband died. Uh, she was an unknown. She had never written anything. She didn't have any degrees. Uh, she was just a widow going through the grief of, of her husband being murdered. And then she wrote these two books that, again, 70 years later, people are still reading them and being impacted by them. Now, what's interesting is, again, Elizabeth Elliot lived till she was like 90. She had a long life after that. And yet, in terms of like what she did that was most impressive, nothing surpassed that. She was a prolific writer, prolific speaker. But what we will remember is these two books she wrote that weren't about her, had almost nothing to do with her. I mean, the reason why people read them is because she was the wife of Jim Elliot, because she lived to tell the tale. And this book that emerged from, again, the sorrow of, you know, going through grief in an Ecuadorian jungle ends up being this incredibly powerful work. I don't, I'm not sure if what I'm trying to communicate is coming through here, but here's the point. Elizabeth Elliot the work, I mean, she was an impressive woman, inspiring in so many ways. It was a great biography. I, I, I finished it. Very grateful I've read it. But her best work came out of her weakest moments. That's what I'm getting at. Her best work came when she was unknown. Before people knew Elizabeth Elliot and were paying lots of money to have her speak at their conferences, that's, where her, that's when God's most fruitful use of her talents came through. It was out of her own weakness. And I think when we look at the Bible, this seems to be a common way that God works. He does his best work in us, not when we are at our best or not when we are kind of in our groove, or, but it's, it seems to be when we're our weakest, when we feel like we've failed. That's when God seems to do his greatest work. And I think that's what we see in our story this morning in Gideon. Again, we see God working through the very weakness and fear and insecurity of Gideon to bring about a victory that had absolutely nothing to do with human strength or strategy or effectiveness and everything to do with God himself, who alone can work that kind of powerful victory. And in fact, we'll see that um, our, oftentimes our most fruitful service to God is precisely when we are at our weakest, when we think we are failing and although no one wants to be weak, that's not fun. No one wants to feel like they've failed. 
What we'll also see from Gideon is that success might actually be the worst thing for us. So our outline for us this morning as we get into this story, first point, God's strategy, part one, raise up a weak leader. Second point, God's strategy, part two, make Israel as weak as possible. And third point, Gideon's legacy, the danger of success. So our first point, God's strategy, part one, raising up a weak leader. Again, um, this, you've, you've probably noticed this already, we're covering three chapters this morning. We, we read only less than half of what I'm covering. So there's a lot of details I'm not going to be able to cover. And um, I'm just going to say this, it's, it's hard to preach three chapters. So I, I feel like these are not, it's just hard. Please bear with me. I'm, I'm, this is the, you know, I'm doing my best. I'm used to preaching smaller chunks. We're preaching a big chunk. So hopefully this makes sense and it's coherent and it's God's word. So at the very least, if I preach God's word, it'll be, it'll be helpful. Um, But anyways, so I'm not going to be reading a lot of it. I'm going to be summarizing a lot. We begin again, Israel is doing what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's shorthand, as we've learned, for Israel is beginning to worship the Baals and the Asherah, the gods that are around them. And so as happens, God sells them into a foreign nation. That's the consequences of this sin. And this nation describes the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people from the east. And and these are a a nomadic, semi-nomadic people group that were coming from the Sinai wilderness, and what seems to be happening is, is, you know, right when harvest was coming, Midianites would come from the wilderness, would cross Jordan, and then just consume all the crops. And again, Israel's an agrarian society. That's where most of their substance comes from, is crops and their livestock. And the Midianites would come in, they'd take all the crops, they'd take all the livestock, and then once everything that's edible and green and life, you know, has life is gone, then they would go back to their homeland. And one thing I've mentioned is that each power that comes, you had uh, the king of Mesopotamia, then you had uh, uh, the Moabite king, and then um, Jabin, king of Canaan. Each time, it seems to get worse. So Eglon took tribute. But then uh, Jabin, who came after him, he violently oppressed Israel, so much so that the Israelites didn't feel safe to live in their villages, and the highways were abandoned. But here with Midian, it's so bad that when they show up, nowhere is safe, and the people flee even the cities. They go into the mountains and the caves, and they, and they do what they can to hide from the Midianites. And you can imagine, again, a society where most of your substance comes from the crops and from your flock, and every year, right when you're about to harvest, they're completely taken from you, nothing left over. Seven years of this. And as it says in verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. But what's interesting about our story that's different from other stories is typically Israel cries out for help and then it immediately goes to the deliverer. But God sends a prophet to answer back Israel before he raises up a deliverer. And and, and it's interesting to look at what God's response is. So verses 7 to 10 in chapter 6 When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to him, said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
but you have not obeyed my voice. And again, we see Israel's problem here is not that they're rejecting worship of Yahweh. I mean, the prophet doesn't say, you've stopped offering sacrifices, or you've stopped the prescribed feasts and festivals you were supposed to keep. What he says is, you weren't supposed to fear the gods of the Amorites. When he says fear, doesn't mean you weren't supposed to be afraid. It means you weren't supposed to reverence them. You weren't supposed to worship them. But you have not obeyed my voice. Israel, again, is, they're, 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 they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They want both and. Hey, we want to worship Yahweh. He seems to give us good things, but we also want all of the gods of the, of the land because they seem to give a lot of good things too. And what's interesting here is that this sheds light on what, this sheds light on verse 6 when it says that Israel cried out to the Lord. Israel was experiencing sorrow. I mean, they, they needed the Lord, but yet they weren't willing to give up their idols yet. And one of the interesting things we see in Judges is we see a lot of principles and truths on spiritual renewal, decline, how these things happen. And what we see here is that it is possible to feel sorrow over sin without actually repenting. Israel feels great sorrow, and yet they're not giving up their idols. And the way the Bible distinguishes between these kinds of sorrows is it talks about there, we can have a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Uh, Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, that as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces the repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly grief leads to repentance, and that's where life really is found. Worldly grief, in the long run, leads to death. Now, how do we, what's the difference between worldly grief and godly grief? Well, I think the easiest way to think of it is this way. Godly grief is mostly concerned with the fact of the sin, that I have done this thing. Worldly grief is far more concerned with the consequences of the sin. What is going to happen because I did this thing? So I remember hearing a story of a senior pastor who one of his associate pastors found out that he was engaging in an affair. And the associate pastor confronted him. And the senior pastor immediately expressed remorse. He said, you're right, I'm doing this, it's wrong. He looked very repentant. And then he immediately said, can we please handle this among the pastors and not tell the church? And from one sense, he seemed very repentant. But that is a telltale sign of a worldly sorrow. Immediately trying to manage, you know, uh, damage control, public relations. And fortunately, the associate pastor refused to do that, and he brought it before the church. And when all was said and done, it came out that the pastor had engaged in multiple affairs with multiple women over the years. In contrast, godly sorrow, when our sorrow is over the fact that we have sinned, it doesn't, we will do what it takes to bring the sin to light. We'll do what it takes to make sure that we stop doing what we've been doing because our greatest concern, again, is not, what's gonna, it's not the consequences that are going to come, but it's how we have sinned against God and dishonored him and broken his commands. Israel here, again, they're, yeah, they're low. Who wouldn't be? Seven years of oppression by the Midianites. But it doesn't seem like this is godly sorrow yet because they're not willing to get rid of their idols. They're not willing to trust in Yahweh alone. And in fact, Gideon's going to have to break down the idols in his own hometown before God will send him to deliver Israel from this oppressor. 
again, as we're looking at judges, and like, what does it tell us about spiritual renewal, and how do we seek spiritual renewal? Sometimes before God can bring renewal, he has to expose the idols in our lives. And as I mentioned, that doesn't mean that we go into our backyard and we break down the physical altars we've made to Asherah and Baal like it was for Israel, but the idols in our hearts, the things that we're tempted to love and want more than God himself. Whenever in the subtleties of a heart we say something along the lines of, I cannot live without X, or I don't want to live unless I have X, unless that X is God, that's an idol. And sometimes before God can bring the renewal we want, the deeper fellowship and communion with him that we want, he's got to expose those, and that could be painful, but again, godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life and joy. But here's the thing, and I'm getting sidetracked here. The main point here is, though, that God hears even worldly sorrow and he answers it. Isn't that amazing? Israel here is, I mean, we talk about a half-hearted repentance. But yet God hears it and has compassion. And he raises up, perhaps not the leader we would expect. And this is one of the themes of the story, which is Gideon's fears and weaknesses. Let's look at, again, verses 11 to 16 again. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Again, one of the themes in our story is God raises up a very fearful man. The story keeps coming back to how scared and insecure and unsure of himself and unimpressive Gideon is. And yet that's the man that God raises up. So for instance, we first meet Gideon. Where is he? He's in a wine press threshing the wheat. Why is he doing that? Well, verse 12 tells us he's hiding it from the Midianites. Again, the Midianites are coming in stealing all the food. So where do you thresh grain? He's doing it in a place that you know, wine press would have walls. You could hide in there. So here, you know, they say it's hard to get past first impressions. What's our first impression of, of Gideon? Well, here this mighty man of valor is hiding from the enemy <laughs> in a wine press. That's our first impression of Gideon. And then you, you keep going on, and, and again, it keeps bringing out this, 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 this uh, 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 theme of, of Gideon's uh, weakness. I mean, Gideon says in verse 15, he's like, look, I'm... I'm I'm from the least significant clan in an unimpressive tribe, and I am the least of my family. Gideon is well aware that he, according to the status of the time, did not have a whole lot of status. And he's very aware of that. In other words, he's insecure. He's got an inferiority complex. He's like, I'm nothing. He asks, <clears throat> when the angel of the Lord comes, who it calls the Lord himself, this is probably uh, an appearance of, of the second member of the Trinity, Christ. <clears throat> he says, I send you. And then Gideon says, you're going to 
you got to give me some kind of sign, some kind of miraculous sign for me to believe that you can actually do this. And then when he gives him the sign, then Gideon believes for a moment, and then he tells Gideon, we got to go destroy the altars in your hometown to Baal and Asherah, because God will, will not accept, right, to, to be the co-pilot with other gods. Like, he will be our all or nothing. And Gideon obeys God, but he does it at night. Why? Because he's afraid. And then, of course, you have the famous fleece uh, story, which as Christians, oftentimes we use it as like a metaphor for trying to find God's will. So we're like, I'll, I'll put out a fleece and see what God wants. But in the story, that's not how Gideon is using it. He knows what God has told him to do. He doesn't need discernment or direction. God has literally spoken verbally and said, you go do this, go deliver Israel. Again, what Gideon is doing, he's like, God, you gotta give me some evidence that you can do this because I'm really afraid. And then God does this miraculous thing where he makes, you know, the fleece full of dew and the ground around us wet. And then Gideon's like, okay, do it again and do it the opposite. I mean, it, it comes across like Gideon is like, what can I do or say to get out of this commission that God has put on my life? And then finally, the night of the attack, again, it says in verse 10, God is speaking to, to Gideon, if, but if you are afraid, go down to the camp, for I've given it into your hand. And then Gideon goes down, and here's the Midianites talking about how, you know, this Midian had a, had a dream about how Gideon was going to destroy them all. Again, Gideon is just, he's afraid. This is not the man that you would pick, right, to be leading the, the, the people of Israel. He's weak, he's unimpressive, he's insecure. Yeah, this is the man that God raises for the day. And what's really interesting is that how does what does God call Gideon? This is how Gideon's described. I mean, he's fearful, insecure, inferiority complex. <clears throat> Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appears to him. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Okay, how do we, how do we make sense of that? It's very clear that Gideon is not a mighty man of valor. He's literally hiding from the people that he's going to be called to go attack. And God says, you are a mighty man of valor. Now, now some people would look at this and say, well, he, well, God's being sarcastic. He's drawing out the irony of, hey, you're like hiding from them. I don't think so. God is occasionally sarcastic, but it's always with those who are his enemies because it's stupidity to fight God. You're a fool. He never mocks his own. In our fear and our weakness, God is never sarcastic with his own. So another option, though, is God is, is basically saying what is true about Gideon, even though Gideon doesn't know it, that God knows in the depths of Gideon's heart, he knows who Gideon can be. And that's closer, I think, right? Because, like, we oftentimes wonder if we were a mistake. Like, am I really the one that is right for what God has called me to be and to do. And God is much more certain than we are that he has not made a mistake with us. That whatever calling God has given on your life, whatever context he's put you in, like you are the person God wanted. He's much more confident about that than we are. That's why there's, there's some truth to that. But I don't think that's why God calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. I think the reason is what's said in the text it's because God is the one who has called him and God is with him. 
And that is why Gideon is a mighty man of valor. Again, verse 12 says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then in verse 14, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And then verse 16, the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. He's like, Gideon, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be the power in your right hand. You have more power than you can fathom. Go in this might of yours. When God comes to Gideon, hiding in the wine press, he knows Gideon's weaknesses better than Gideon does. Like, God's not hoodwinked. But yet he says, you're a mighty man of valor because I will be with you. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples, there was a similar situation. In John 14, when Jesus tells his disciples he's going to have to leave them, he says, where I go, you can't come. And his disciples are saying, what? What? You're the one who does all the miracles. You're the one who has all the answers, and you're going to leave us. And it says they were troubled. They were afraid. And how does Jesus comfort them? He doesn't do this. He doesn't say, hey, guys, 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 you got this. I mean, look at how you've grown. Look how far you've come. Look what you've accomplished. Like, you'll be, guys, you'll be okay. I believe in you. Jesus doesn't say that. What he does say in John 14, 18 to 19 is this. He says, don't be afraid. Why? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus comforts them by saying, look, I, I'm going to come back and be with you. I'm going to die on a cross, but then I'm going to raise back to life, and I will be with you to the ends of the earth. And that's why you don't need to be afraid. See, for a Christian, our strength and our power is always the fact that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is with us. What do you have to be afraid of? What could you possibly walk through your life to be afraid of, knowing that Jesus himself is going to be with you? Gideon was a mighty man of valor because the Lord of hosts was with him. God raises up, and this is the first part of God's strategy, he raises up a weak leader and then makes him a strong man to show the power is not Gideon's, the power is not yours and mine, it's his. And so this is the first point, God's strategy part one. He raises up a weak leader. <clears throat> and then God continues this strategy with the second part of his strategy, which is God's strategy part two, make Israel as weak as possible. And this was the chapter we just read. Again, I'm going to summarize it. Uh, but uh, Gideon gathers as many Israelites as he can, and they, they, they line up for battle, and there's about 32,000 Israelites and 120,000 Midianites. And that's a problem, because there's a four-to-one ratio. For every four Midianites, there's only one Israelite soldier. Uh, that's suicide. Like, even if Israel was some kind of elite fighting force and was far better equipped and trained in the Midianites, that's still, like, that's suicide odds. And Israel wasn't. They were the underdog. They were the ones who have been oppressed for seven years. Probably half those 32,000 didn't even have a weapon. There's a problem here. And God sees the problem too, but it's a totally different problem. Look at verse 2. 
The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. I just like, you know, humans, we're funny people. You know, like three guys or four guys jumped me and I managed to beat them. And rather than being like, an angel must have been with me, I'm just like, I'm better than I thought I was. Man. We're goofy people. And God knows it. He's like, nope. This, the problem here is not that there's not enough Israelites. There's too many. And when I give the Israelite victory, they're, they're not going to realize it was my power and they're not going to turn back to me. So he sends more people home. They send 22,000 home. Now there's 10,000 Israelites and 120,000 Midianites. Now it's 1 to 12. There are 12 Midianite soldiers for every one Israelite soldier. These odds are really, really bad. This is a problem. Again, verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I'll test them for you there. And it goes on from there. And he makes 9,600 more soldiers go home. Now there are 300 left. And in case you're not as quick at math as some of you are, that's, that's 400 Midianites for every one Israelite soldier. That means every Israelite soldier is basically fighting an army of their own. And then finally God says, okay, even you guys aren't going to be able to pretend like this was by your own power. I can work with this. Now, as you're hearing the story, you probably heard this part where he's like, okay, this, the last test is he's going to send people down to drink, and some people lap water like a dog. They stay. Other people go home. And I've heard various explanations for this. I, I think the point is it's arbitrary. Right. I mean, Gideon could have had, like, the 300 men from the movie 300, the 300 Spartans. It doesn't matter. You're going up against 120,000 people. He could have had 300 marshmallows with him. It would have made as much difference. The whole point is God saying, Gideon, you and, and the people of Israel, you're, un, you're not the point. God could do all of this with 300 marshmallows as easily as 300 people. Because the power is his. The glory goes to him. That can be, um, it can be hard. Yeah. From one sense, it can be hard for us to accept that we are completely unnecessary in terms of what God wants to accomplish. It can be hard for us to really accept that because we want to believe that we're necessary. But there is also amazing comfort and freedom when we realize that we're not necessary. When I realize that God could raise up a donkey and preach this sermon far better than I ever could, that's how unnecessary I am. Why, does that, why is that comforting? Because of this, I can stop worrying what anyone thinks of me. Because I'm not the point. You can stop worrying about what other people think about your job or your status or what you've accomplished or what you hope to accomplish, and you can just be the person that Jesus has called you to be. It frees you to be a worshiping creature when you realize that God's the point, not us. And so... With these 300 men, again, as the story goes, Gideon takes on the Midian army. He has each man take a light and a trumpet. They surround the Midian army at night. They blow the trumpets. And the Midianites basically 
fall in the chaos and kill each other. I mean, that's like literally like Gideon, the Midianites do God's work for him. Like that's, you know, Gideon's just there to watch it. And again, this is God's strategy. This is God's strategy in our text. He comes up with a formula that is sure to fail. He picks an unimpressive, insecure, fearful leader who doesn't want to be there in the first place. And then he gives him a strategy that is going to fail like a million times out of a million times. Like there's zero statistical probability this could possibly win. He puts his people in the weakest possible position. That's God's strategy. And it's in that place of absolute weakness, of, 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 of absurdity, that he does the greatest work. That he delivers them. God brings success out of seeming failure. He works his best work when Israel is at their weakest. And again, I think this is, seems to be one of the modes of operation that God works in the Bible. And Paul gives probably the most explicit teaching of this in, first, in 2 Corinthians 12. And this is the passage that we read earlier in the service. There seems to be some kind of physical affliction Paul's suffering with. It's keeping him from doing ministry. You feel like it's making him weak. And he's, he's crying out to God to take away whatever this thorn in the flesh is. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God takes Gideon when he's weak, and that's when he uses him. He takes Israel when Israel is overmatched. He makes them weaker. And then in that weakness, he shows his power. And that's why Paul says, look, if my weakness shows God's power, then you know what? I'll boast in my weakness. I'll rejoice in being weak. Because what do we want? We want to see God in his power. If my weakness allows me to see God's power in my life, allows you to see God's power in my life, allows you to see God's power in your life, then, then you know, let, bring the weakness on. I think this is a truth we have to relearn over and over and over again because you, know, you feel like you learn it, but it's just so contrary to, every, to, to, to how our world works. We, we care about power and success and impressiveness, and yet God works in our weakness. His power is shown in our weakness. So let's boast in our weaknesses for success, and this again brings us to our last point, Let's boast in our weaknesses, for that oftentimes shows God's power the strongest, but also, in contrast, success might be the worst thing for us. And this is our third and final point, Gideon's legacy, the danger of success. Now, again, I'm just going to be summarizing a lot. We get to the end of chapter 7, and it seems like it should be done. That's how the stories end, right? Enemies routed, and the land had rest for 40 years, and then Gideon died. That's how we expect it to end, but we have this whole chapter with this whole postlude and what happens is, is in chapter 8, there are, uh, Gideon continues to pursue the kings of Midian, and there's three confrontations. Uh, first, he confronts the Ephraimites, the tribe of Israel, and they come up to Gideon. They're angry at Gideon because they're like, Gideon, you didn't include us in this battle, and so we missed out on the glory of victory. And, um, and they're, they're spoiling for a fight. 
And Gideon responds really well. He shows the truth of the proverb, a gentle answer turns away wrath. He just, he's very self-deprecating, very humble. And, and, and because he answers them very well, the Ephraimites are satisfied and, 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 and they, they avoid what could have been an intertribal war. But then, based on the second two confrontations, it makes you begin to think that maybe Gideon responded that way, not because he was humble and wise, but because he knew he could never beat the Ephraimites. They were too strong for him. It was a pragmatic calculus. Because he goes right from there to then a city, an Israelite city called Sukkoth. He's pursuing the Midianite kings, and, he, he, and they stop by an Israelite city of Sukkoth, and he says, please give us help. And they, they say no, and they kind of mock him. And instead of responding with that humility and wisdom, Gideon responds with, basically, do you know who I am and what I just did? And when I finish it, I'm going to come back and teach you guys a lesson. He responds with this entitlement and anger. And then he goes on to another Israelite city, Penuel, and again asks them for help, and the same thing happens. They kind of mock him, and again, he responds with, do, do you know what I just did? I'm going to come back and teach you a lesson when I finish it. And then when he finally catches up with the kings of Midian, and they, they've routed the army completely, we learn another detail that, again, gives a whole different light on this whole chapter 8 pursuit of these kings and then we find out that these two kings had killed Gideon's brothers. And all of a sudden, what seemed to be Gideon just being a faithful deliverer of Israel begins to look a lot more like just personal vengeance at this point, anyways. And then after all that, Israel wants to make Gideon king. And Gideon responds really well. In verse 23, Gideon says, I will not rule, this is chapter 8, verse 23, I will not rule over you. They say, they say Gideon, come rule over us. He says, I'm not going to rule over you. My son won't rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And you're like, amen, Gideon. God is their king. That's the whole point. Don't turn to Baal or Asher. Like, God is the one who will care for you and rule over you. And his burden is easy and his yoke is light. But then Gideon, he says the right thing, and then he goes on to act exactly like a king. He says, but give me some of the spoils you guys got just like a king would exact tribute. He creates an ephod, which was part of the worship a priest would wear, that people would come to discern, uh, uh, basically ask questions of the Lord. And he sets that up in his hometown. He creates an alternative worship site in his hometown. Again, the man who is so aware of his inferior status and how unimpressive his town was, he begins to bring prestige to his hometown. As Tim Keller writes, Gideon had used God to consolidate his own position instead of using his position to serve and be used by God. And that's how it ends, the chapter. And so here we have Gideon, who began so fearful, so afraid, so uncertain, and as this man who's just full of himself, entitled. Uh, oh, by the way, when he comes back through, he... He, uh, he beats up the elders in the one city, and then he destroys the other city, the ones that mocked him. Comes across as a petty, vengeful man. He begins with faith again when God gives him that last sign where he goes into the Midianite camp, and he hears them telling of that dream, and it's the last sign that God's going to give them into his hand. It says again, worships, and then he leads the people with faith 
This man who began with such faith and he finishes so fully in the flesh, what happened? Well, Gideon was really successful. That's what happened. And rather than with Paul seeing that as an example of God's power in his weakness, he began to take credit for himself. It was no longer what God had done through him, but again, he's thinking this is something he did. And again, this is why one of the truths we take away from this, from Gideon's legacy, is that success may be the most dangerous thing that any of us could face. Strength may be the most dangerous thing that any of us could face. When, when Gideon was afraid, God spoke to him. All of chapter six and seven, God is speaking to Gideon, and Gideon is speaking back. Yeah, it's part of it's Gideon just being afraid and like, but God is speaking with him. He, Gideon knows his need of God. When we move into chapter eight, when Gideon begins to act like the kind of entitled tyrant that he becomes, mention of God ends. Gideon doesn't talk to God and God doesn't talk to Gideon. Again, Gideon was an insecure man and you know, all of us are insecure in various ways. And when you're insecure, what you long for is something to prove that you're worth something. If I could just do this or have done that. And here Gideon finally has something that he can prove himself with. He's led this great victory, had this smashing success. And in the long run, it's far worse for him. And, 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 and we'll pick up next week in, in, in kind of what happens to his family. I mean, the generations of of consequences. Oh, oh. Success was the worst thing for Gideon. And, I, and I'll just, you know, again, I'm, I'm in ministry, so I'll share from, from my own experience. But I think, you know, with most guys who go to seminary, especially if they, if they want to preach, maybe I'm being too vulnerable here. <laughs> There's a little part in your heart that thinks, I might be the next John Piper. It's true. It's true. God is so kind that he does not give that kind of success to the vast, vast majority of us. So although there's a little part of you that wants to be there, I mean, wow, what if 5,000 people were listening to me preach every Sunday? I mean, how would that not turn your head? We shouldn't pray for success. Don't long for it. Don't yearn for it. It's a siren song. And it'll most likely shipwreck your life. What should we long for and pray for? Pray for faithfulness. You know, we all, we have so many different contexts in here. Some of us are retired, some of us are students, some of us are working, some of us are parents, some of us are children. Pray and yearn for faithfulness that you will use where you are to the glory of God. To know Jesus more where you are in the circumstances you have. To walk more closely with him. Pray for that. And then, if God does give you some measure of worldly success, maybe it won't completely ruin your life. Pray for faithfulness. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are one who uses fearful people like Gideon. 
We thank you that you know our weaknesses better than we do. And the beautiful mystery of your providence, you often work through our weaknesses to show your power. May you work in us to do the work you want to do in us. And all we ask for is that we will be faithful. That whatever talents you've given to us, we will be as faithful as them as we can by the power and strength you've given us until we stop breathing or until you come back. Jesus, may you do this. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.